Okay, welcome everyone. I'm Ajahn Sedanto, and this is our first uh, Tea Time question and answer series for our uh, virtual Birkin retreat. And I'll be the host for this. And we have the Pacific Hermitage retreatants here in the uh, virtual Birkin tea room, um, just the normal place where we host these conversations when we have our retreat with uh, Ajahn Sona up at Birkin Monastery. And we've done our best to recreate that for, for ourselves this afternoon. And today is our first full day of practice. And we started last night with uh, Ajahn Sona's introductory talk on the, the theme of the retreat, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. So we have up to an hour to use here at uh, this time of the day and uh, to take questions and uh, follow up on the theme of the retreat as a way to uh, deepen our understanding, encourage each other, and also uh, nurture this critical faculty of Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhammas. So we'll be hosting this on Zoom and streaming it to Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel every day. Uh, and the uh, Pacific Hermitage retreatants are here in the Zoom meeting room with uh, myself. And I have a few questions uh, today, one from somebody who's filled out the question form. Um, a link for that's available on uh, Birkin's website, birkin.ca. And if people get their questions in by 9 a.m. each morning, we'll go through and questions that are uh, clear and to the point of the uh, retreat or the theme of the retreat will be considered to be included in these question and answers series. Uh, and uh, for the retreatants as well, if you want to uh, use that form, and submit questions that will help us prepare uh, questions, but uh, they'll be able to uh, read or ask their questions here uh, live using audio. So maybe to start things off, uh, we can go to Scott Benj from Bend, Oregon, who has the first question. So Scott, would you like to go ahead and ask your question? Well, thank you, Ajahn. It looks like you're at Birkin. Even the fire looks like it's burning in the background there. It is. <laughs> That's quite clever. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um, Ajahn Sono was talking last night about the uh, sentry mm -hmm. and, and how it monitors the, uh, the breath coming in the body and also uh, how it monitors the uh, six sense doors uh, or, or the mind. Hmm. monitoring for wholesome and unwholesome experiences. And, you know, in my experience, the body has a, a felt sense that is, you know, recognizable. You know, it seems to be readily available um, and, and can be a timely experience. However, you know, when I work with the mind, it doesn't seem to have as easily as recognizable sensation, you know, similar to the felt sense of the body and thus it's not as timely um, for me. So I can get farther along on the, on the following the, the thought before I realize what's going on. So 
Right. I'm asking what uh, practices you would suggest to become more readily aware of the mind's reactions or responses. And mm-hmm. this, this might be leading into the, the second uh, foundation. Well, um, well, it leads into, I would say it leads into all of them. So um, that's, a, that's a very good question, Scott. Thanks for asking that. And, um, you know, I, you know, the Buddha points out that part of the reason why he gives such emphasis to mindfulness of the body is because the body is an easier, slower moving sort of stream of phenomena to be experienced. It's, it's, um, and so, um, it's a more approachable, suitable, easy sort of object for meditation. Um, the mind is incredibly quick and the mind can be incredibly subtle. So being mindful of the mind is a little more difficult, especially in a very continuous, uh, long-term sort of way. And it's much easier to have mindful moments of the body as we move through our day in the various kind of conditions of our our life than it is to be uh, maintaining a strong mindfulness of the mind and mental contents. Um, But there are, you know, there are ways to approach this. And as you say, the, you know, the mindfulness of the, of the, of the body um, is connected with this. And like so many dhammas, there's overlapping things going on here. So, you know, you talked about the, the felt sense of the body. Well, part of what is felt in the body is, is the expression of feeling. And here we mean emotion. There's emotional uh, tones that are evoked um, with the thought process. So if one gets anger, angry or something, there is a, a bodily sort of response there that is a component of that um, that one can be mindful of. So and even if we're just focusing and putting our attention to cultivate mindfulness of the body, we're, we're going to be aware of, of the mind and what's, what's going on. And you know, a lot of a lot of practice. It's very nice and tidy in the suttas. We have these four foundations, our four ways to frame um, our attempts to practice and cultivate sati. But there's always this this overlapping experience, and these are these are frames. So you know, you can be attending to sort of body sensations, and at the same time, there is vedana. There is feeling uh and your your mind just effortlessly starts kind of noticing sort of the the neutral the positive or the negative affect that's accompanying this body sensation um and the same is true even of ideas so you know there's ways to be knowing uh the mind as it's expressed and felt in the body there's ways to know the mind and stay mindful of the mind through this what i call feeling effect but the the poly term is vedana um the third foundation uh, chitta nupassana or mindfulness of the mind you're turning more directly to sort of like what's the state of mind and is it present or is it absent is the mind angry or is the mind without anger is the mind expansive or contracted um, and that, that that's also a way of of knowing the mind. 
And it's a little more ephemeral and difficult to develop, but we also can develop this ability to just to just be aware of this knowing quality that Lumpur Cha talked about, the Puru, the knower. And it's like this type of 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 mindfulness where we're attentive to and mindful of the experience of being able to know experience itself. And it's something Lumpur Cha talked about a lot, something Ajahn Sumedho talks about a lot. That's also a type of mindfulness. Um, and then Dhamma categories as well is a way to know the mind. So there's there's all these kind of overlapping things. It is more challenging to develop uh, a connected and uh, a practice that has continuity, staying aware of the mind. But there's multiple strategies is, is really the answer. And... Mm, the general the general advice is to really ground ourselves and train ourselves uh, with mindfulness of the body, and then experiment and expand out from that as we get stronger in our practice. So, uh, is there any? Um, do you have a follow up on that, Scott, or shall we go to the next question? If you do, just raise your hand. Maybe we'll go to uh next question that was submitted was from Shelly. Shelly, you want to um, share your question with us? Shelly Baxter from White Salmon. Unmute. Thank you, Ajahn. Hmm. This is uh, another question on the century analogy. <clears throat> I I might have misunderstood. I had been thinking about the century as in uh, don't expose yourself to uh, certain ideas or experiences um, in order to sustain equanimity. Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that's only for retreat time. So but then I thought, well, that can't really be it because uh, part of the, the practice is to be able to um, uh, sustain equanimity with all comers. But, but I'm not sure. So <laughs> especially in terms of looking at what's going on with the uh, pandemic right now. And I've got a mind that's actually quite interested in the political economy of uh, what's happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And of course I do see um, anger, frustration and angst arise. Mm -hmm. So, it, so is the century to not look at any, anything or the century is to see, see that arise and turn it off, i.e. the angst, etc. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, why don't you go ahead and, Go back on mute, and then if you have a follow-up, you can raise your hand. Um, well, I mean, in in the way you you wrote your question here, you're talking about like shutting everything out that could be upsetting, and you know there there actually is a case for a time of doing that, and a time of retreat is the time to do that um, because we're going to put our energy into creating the most favorable conditions um, 
to to develop our practice and to develop insight. And um, you know, even though we are very concerned or um, have a great interest in um, things going on, and even such something as historical and weighty as this kind of pandemic, um, thinking about it can only take us so far. And you know, the job of the century, if you're trying to cultivate your your meditation and you're trying to put more hours or more of your day into that than maybe you normally would, then the century gets different instructions. Um, and the, the century has different instructions when we're focused on developing a particular style of meditation or we have a particular focus of meditation. Like there's all kinds of suitable objects of meditation. But, you know, if you've decided to cultivate sort of breath meditation, then the century's job is to keep everything out except for the perception of the breath coming in and out as you're developing the meditation. So uh, the sentry just doesn't have a, a fixed job role. I mean, his instructions, his role kind of changes as the situations of our life change and uh, as the things that we're trying to sort of cultivate and develop sort of change. Um, and, you know, quite, quite reasonably, we can't, we can't just shut the world out and the Buddha's not um, encouraging us to do that, but he's saying when you want to cultivate the mind, um, cultivate the path, then the century gets a different set of instructions for that to happen in the best way. And I think Ajahn will be getting to this, but you know, the, the instructions on how it is that we're attending uh, to the mind with this Satipatthana it is to get someplace. And in particular, it's to uh, overcome the hindrances and cultivate the seven factors of awakening. Um, so the century is given some instructions about what to let in and what to keep out uh, with that aim. And... Uh, And, and, and then he has to use his judgment, as we do, um, about what, what can be let in, um, you know, and uh, the, the instructions on guarding the senses are very similar. And one has to, one has to use self-knowledge to judge what it is that we, we can safely sort of let in and give our attention to. And the metric or the measure of that is knowing ourselves and knowing the hindrances, knowing what uh, nurtures and feeds the hindrances and what sort of weakens and undermines the hindrances. Uh, so, you know, in short, like that's something you have to ask for your, your, ask yourself. And there's slightly different answer. Like when you're in retreat mode or practice mode and when you're just kind of in your, general life so so anyways uh is there any follow-up on that shelly or shall we move to the next question thank you ajahn hmm, okay so anyone else just raise your hand if people have something they want to share or a question 
Yeah, um, Heather Balcom from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Ajahn. Um, I'm curious, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for Shelley's question. I think that's very helpful. And I'm curious, the distinction between, um, I see myself slipping into possibly like avoidance, 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 numbing, 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 and like, like how to recognize when it's, when I find myself um, not letting things in that should be let in, um, like uh, avoiding emotion or avoiding anger or uh, in, in order to change things. I may be answering my own question, but I'm curious if you have words on that. Well, the example that, the example you brought up is, sounds like you're, you're wondering if you should admit in sort of unskillful states of mind. And like the Buddha's answer is, is no, um, you want to keep those out and then strengthen the mind to sort of deal with the situation at hand, um, absent those emotions as much as possible. Um, you know, the model is like we're, you know, if we can't think about something without it taking us to anger, you know, the Buddha says, set it aside for now, develop strength of mind. And then if it's something you need to attend to, then revisit and attend to it. Um, and it goes contrary to the way normal people feel about this. You know, um, society sort of weights it in the other way. It's like, you know, then they have a whole set of justifications about sort of ignoring the fact that attending to something or thinking about something throws us off bounds and arouses unhelpful and skillful emotions. And they say, well, that's just got to be the cost and I need to think about this. And the Buddhist instruction is, um, no, strengthen your mind so you can get to a place where you can think about it um, with as a little sort of negative affect as possible. You'll be in a much stronger position to sort of deal with it. Um, and it feeds into sort of the Buddhist model of mind is like those afflictive emotions um, color the mind. They feed delusion. They feed uh, an unclear way of thinking and uh, experiencing and even reacting to sort of the things of our life. So um, it's counter to the way that the world normally kind of deals with this. But the Buddha says, you know, the way that average people sort of interact with their life is 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 a bit careless and and it that's why it supports an extra level of dukkha and suffering so and again similar to sort of my response to shelley you know if you want to take a period of time out like we are now to be on retreat then you know you that balance should change um uh, 10 days will go by very quick and then there will be time to sort of revisit some of the, the things that are pressing upon us and challenging us. Uh, and it'd be nice to return to them with fresh eyes and uh, a strong heart and strong mind. You might find new answers and uh, new ways of, of dealing with things. So I saw a hand go up. Mariam, she was there and then she was gone. So, okay. Mariam, did you still have a question? Uh, thank you, Ajahn. I'm 
I was hesitant whether this is the right time to ask this question. It's about the century one, and it is this afternoon when I was practicing the walking meditation, hmm. I was thinking about how to incorporate this new information I have from last night. And I felt like it's hard enough to keep up with the breath in terms of when you're walking, it's hard to, um, at least for me, it was to, to do that. And then I was trying to bring another one. And I wanted to see if there is a method that you can recommend that with walking meditation, we can also be thinking about what comes in, what, what we allow to come in and what we don't allow to come in. Since there are too many other things coming in at the same time to begin with versus just sitting down meditation. In the morning, I had an easier time. Mm -hmm. I was able to do it and it was a very nice experience. But when I was doing the walking meditation, I felt like I had maybe too many input. Mm -hmm. And um, Can you describe how it is, how it is that you're uh, doing the walking meditation because there's many styles? And I heard you mention early on something about the breath while you're doing walking meditation. Um, when I try my, do my walking meditation, I try to stay with the in and out breath mm -hmm. if I'm walking it slowly. Mm -hmm. If I'm not walking it slowly, I try to uh, practice on the sensation of the heel to toe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I try to focus from head to toe. Mm -hmm. And different times I try to say right, left boot, left foot, no. So boot, no, boot, okay. no, right, left, right, left. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do different things to calm the mind. <laughs> right. Okay. So in that situation, like, and, and I do uh, breath meditation when I walk quite a lot. That's a nice way to practice walking meditation. You do tend to need to walk a little slower sometimes to do that. But whether you're doing that or you're giving the attention to uh, the touch of the foot as you're sort of walking, um, in the, the sentry there, like what's playing the role of the sentry really is, is a, it's a non-discursive kind of quiet thing that's going on in the mind that's, that's, mindful that where the attention should be is on the object of your meditation. So, you know, if you're, you're walking and your determination is to do walking meditation and give full attention to sort of the sensations of the right foot touching and rolling forward and then the left foot touching and rolling forward. It's like the instructions to the sentry are keep your eye on that keep focused on that, keep everything else out. Um, and there's not an extra discursive sort of thing that needs to be going on sort of measuring that. It's just uh, your commitment is to sort of focusing on that. And discernment can work sort of knowing sort of when you're straying from that and then readjusting or coming back, like dropping um, the distractions that are taking the mind away from that. Uh, the same is true of the breath. Um, you know, in, in practice, um, what actually sort of happens is a lot messier and, and more imperfect than the model. And 
there is value to that too. Um, you know, we, because we, we learn a lot about our mind, like that sentry, if you will, that sati that's monitoring uh, what it is that's trying to sort of dominate the mind or take, oh, take, take the attention of the mind um, it is learning. So, you know, it's like we have different goals in practice, of course, and, and one is to develop this kind of very beautiful and, and perfect singleness of mind on the object of meditation. But, you know, our overarching thing is also to learn about the mind. And so part, part of the reason we practice meditation and have a clear central target for our awareness is to learn about the mind. So, um, you know, my encouragement is don't, don't think of it as two things. It's really one act. Um, and give most of the attention to trying to just stay with your strategy of meditation, which is either the touch sensation walking or the breath. So um, there still is a sentry there. So. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay. Let's see. Shelly, go ahead. Um, so I'm, I'm actually, my mind is, I can see the mind struggling with your response. Uh, because at least, I guess right now, I, I want to be able to see what the mind is doing. And if I'm focusing on the breath, it's the breath I see, not the mind. And I'll give you an example. What happened this week in the grocery store, I got really angry. Really, I mean, like, whew, it was, it was a physical thing because nobody was wearing the masks. These young people weren't wearing, wearing the masks in the grocery store. Hmm. And almost immediately, I started laughing because, I, and I said to myself, gee, I need more meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was so obvious that the, uh, something had taken a hold of my mind and, you know, my emotions. And, but, but I was able to, I was able to see it right away. Well, mm -hmm. almost not, in, obviously if it was instantaneous, I wouldn't have gotten mad, but so, so how does that work with following the breath if you don't have any mind to watch, if it's all the breath you're watching? Um, well, I mean, I think you're thinking of it sort of like in a way that's maybe too totalitistic in a way. It's like, um, you know, we're not, we can't meditate. 24 7 and like the the instructions that the buddha are giving are like how how is it that you um formally sort of develop and accomplish the meditation for this aim of overcoming the hindrances and developing the mind and you know we're we're doing that in a temporal way um during the hours that we're devoting ourselves to formal meditation when we learn the value of that we we might extend that out more and more into our, our life, but the goal isn't to live the rest of your life perfectly focused on the breath as a way to sort of shut everything out. It's to develop these various qualities of mind so that we can start to understand ourselves more and understand um, how it is that, that one creates anger over a situation like that 
where they needn't be angry um, and they're they're suffering sort of needlessly because of something that's kind of going on. There's ways that one could interact in that same scenario, absent anger and uh, more in line with the wisdom teachings of the Buddha. So, uh, all right, well, let's go to Sarah next. Hi, Ajahn. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could give some examples of worldly and unworldly thoughts. Worldly and unworldly thoughts. I think Ajahn uh, Sona was talking about that last night when he was talking about the foundation of mindfulness when you're meditating on the content of the mind, I believe. Yeah, there's um, in Chittanupasana, that's one way of categorizing uh, what's going on with the mind. So worldly and unworldly thought. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a frame that uh, I use myself so much when I'm contemplating the mind. So I might put that on, on hold. And we'll revisit that question uh, sure. until a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, even today as I was transitioning from, you know, working full-time into getting into retreat mode a bit, it's like my mind is very much still thinking of, yeah, all kinds of just practical life things. And uh, mm. But then even, even as I meditated a bit more today, it was like, you know, as you sink in and your body starts to relax and your breath starts to relax and then maybe then I noticed, okay, then I'm contemplating more just that open feeling and, you know, qualities of just like qualities of, I don't know if I was at a place of joy, but I mean, it felt, it just felt good to unwind. So I wondered if the mind shifting to noticing those things would be more what he was talking about, about unworldly, but yeah, I was just curious. No, it has a more, it has a more precise and technical meaning. Okay. So, um, and uh, we'll revisit that sort of Great. that's on the road path ahead. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Well, is there any other questions or sharing people have, or shall we include our Q&A today? We have an hour allotted, but we don't have to use it all if people's curiosity is satisfied for the time being. We have 
several days ahead of us here and um, another talk coming up tonight. So maybe we will go ahead and conclude that for our first tea time Q&A. Um, some of the technology is not working exactly as I, I, want, I expected it to. So I'll do a little more research and see if we can make this a little smoother for tomorrow. But um, just a reminder, please submit questions that you have. Oh, there was one more question that I, I had written here that was submitted publicly. So let me go ahead and deal with this one. This is from uh, Gabriella from Germantown, USA. Venerable Sir, when practicing Satipatthana at the sense doors, I often become very confused by the conflict and synergy of the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness. It becomes difficult to differentiate my thinking from Dhammic units most of the time since I try to use the Dhamma in my everyday life and practice. What is the easiest way to check yourself to see if something is merely mind versus Dhammic units, like the five hindrances, the aggregates, the internal and external sense spaces, the enlightenment factors, the noble truths, and the three characteristics? So, Gabriella, I'm interpreting Dhamma units as your translation for. Uh, Dhamma Nupassana, and it's something that Ajahn Sona calls Dhamma categories. And you know, my, my answer or my reflection on this is similar to the question, uh, similar to the answer that I had for Scott's question. Like, there is, these are ways of framing our experience, and so there's overlap. Um, it's not that something uh, only sort of exists within. Uh, one of these frameworks because of the holistic nature of mind and also the overlapping nature of dhammas. Um, and this, this often kind of comes up uh, with these various sort of lists of dhammas, like sometimes even when contemplating the uh, five khandas, it can become very difficult to sort of separate out if something is Sanya or Sankara, because of the the nature of the mind, and um, it's something that kind of obsessed me uh, for a little while early in my practice. And you know, with talking with many teachers, um, eventually uh, I learned that it wasn't so important for everything to sort of neatly fit in its own box. Like these were models uh, of the mind um, to be used for practice and investigation. Uh, so, you know, if what's coming up is confusion, you know, then that itself is kind of becoming a bit of a, an obstacle. There's doubt, there's confusion or something. There are, there's more than one way to evoke this kind of frame. And I'm sure something God's just going to come back to again and again, we're, we're doing this for a reason. It's not to become perfect at categorizing what's going on in our mind. Um, this is a, an exercise, this is a practice that has a name. And in the simplest term, uh, the role of Satipatthana and the aim is to help deal with the hindrances and overcome them and develop the factors of awakening. 
so that we can uh, continue to develop the path. So we'll leave that as our concluding question for today. And uh, please submit some, some more questions for uh, tomorrow's 4 p.m. Uh, tea time Q&A. Uh, there's a link, I think, both on pacifichermitage.org, but the best place to go is birkin.ca. And on the retreat page there, there's a link to submit questions. Have them in by 9 a.m. And we'll go through. And the ones that are on theme and clear, um, we'll consider for including in our tea time uh, tomorrow and going forward. So, okay. I hope you all have a good first day of retreat and that we have a bit more time before we gather again at seven o'clock for our evening chanting and meditation. And then Ajahn's talk will be ready at 8.15 again tonight. So, all right. I wish you well. Thank you. <laughs>